Well, good morning, gang. It is, let's see, 8.49 and a half, at least according to the clock I'm looking at, on Friday morning, September 4th. Good to be here with you again for our devotion time on Friday. We're looking uh, at the book of 1 Corinthians, or what was originally really just a, a letter from Paul to this church in the Corinthian city, or in Corinth. Uh, so far, we've seen Paul do a couple things just as a matter of, of review. On the one hand, he has consistently and consistently and consistently anchored the church in their true identity, their truest identity as uh, Christians, calling them sanctified and justified and uh, thoroughly saved in the whole thing. And he's done that over and over and over again, referred to them as children, you know, children of God. And yet at the same time, he's also um, had to deal with uh, a number of sin issues that the Corinthian church is plagued with. And that is uh, what we're dealing with again today. Last time, and really for a couple chapters, Paul was dealing with uh, them dividing, dividing over different teachers and over who their favorite was for whatever reason. And it was really unnecessary. There was no division actually between the teachers themselves, but for whatever reason, uh, there was people within the Corinthian church that were stirring up un unnecessary division. And so Paul dealt with that. Now we're going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul is going to deal with, well, something that sounds, I mean, extreme, pretty, pretty egregious, pretty messy. Uh, and it just goes to show you that, uh, one, if you're ever prone to sort of over-romanticizing the church, you know, especially the early days, you read Acts chapter 2 and you're like, oh, oh, the glory, the beauty of the church. Well, there is a there is truth to that. I mean, the, the church is this glorious, beautiful thing. I mean, Jesus calls the church his bride. But while here on earth, even in the first century, in the earliest days, it didn't take long for the church to also display its tendency to sin and its tendency to struggle with the same struggles that you find in any gathering of human beings together. And so even in the very earliest parts of the book of Acts, right after you read about the great unity they had and the willingness they had to take care of each other, you end up reading that it takes a couple chapters before uh, there is division over Greek-speaking Christians and, uh, and Hebraic Christians, uh, and they're, you know, they're being treated differently based on that background. And so it's not unusual to see this crop up, and this is certainly one of those issues that even might sound strange to our ears today in 1 Corinthians 5. So Paul says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now let me just stop there. Uh, you read that correctly. You heard that correctly. Apparently within the Corinthian church, they have a guy who is uh, in an ongoing affair with his father's wife. Now, this could either be um, a stepmom. I think most interpreters would suggest that that's the case. Or it could, in fact, be Paul's way of not having to mention what seems almost unthinkable, which is uh, an incestuous relationship with his mother. Either of them are incredibly uh, icky and, you know, we don't want to think about it. Both are not good at all, and we know it almost instinctively. 
And yet Paul says, verse 2, and you are arrogant. Or, Or another way of saying it is, and you are boasting about this. You are boasting about the fact that you have somebody in such a relationship. Now, why would we, why would they be prone to wanting to boast about something like that? That seems silly to us. Well, I think based on the background of the Corinthian church, the Corinthians, you get a bunch of people, they've been freed up in the gospel and they've heard that they are no longer under the law. And so what does that mean? They're free to do anything. Well, you know, who are we to condemn? Who are we to judge? So, you know, if this guy wants to have an affair with his, uh, you know, mother, his stepmom, whatever, you know, hey, hey, we're free, 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 free. Well, no, you're not free to sin. You're free from sin and its power. It doesn't mean you're not going to still struggle with sin, but you're not free to go and live recklessly harming and hurting and insulting your father and insulting uh, your, your community. Uh, no, that's not what freedom looks like. And apparently that's what the church was doing. They were boasting about it. So not only did they have this going on in their church, but they were almost proud of the fact that like, look at how progressive we are, that we, we don't have a problem with such things. Instead, Paul says, Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't like and I don't feel particularly comfortable when I read things like hand someone over to the devil. That sounds really freaky and really scary. What on earth does Paul mean here? Well, most interpreters throughout all of church history have seen this as a way when he says hand this person over to Satan. Uh, Have seen this as a way of saying do not allow this person to continue fellowshipping in the church, to continue receiving communion, to continue receiving the gifts of the church as long as they continue in this behavior. As long as they refuse to repent of this, then they should not be a part of the fellowship because they're sowing discord, they're sowing division, and they're sowing evil within the body. That's the idea here. And yet, please notice, please notice. So like when he says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, the idea is, is that by being, um, by not being able to have access to the church and its gifts, um, not necessarily saying that the person couldn't attend a service per se, but by him not having the access to the, the church and its gifts, that the, that the person would come to see the error of their ways and would be indeed brought to repentance. That's why he says at the end here, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And this brings up a very, very important point about church discipline and is primarily what I want to talk about this morning. Yes, there may be times if somebody is causing great harm to the church, if somebody, let's say, is committing extortion against the church and is stealing from people in the church, if somebody is actively going around and, you know, sleeping with various members of the church or whatnot, if somebody is doing things that are harming the church, there are times 
where the church has a responsibility for the good of the rest of the church, to protect the church, that they may have to ask the person not to come anymore. But the purpose always of church discipline is not punishment, but the hope of restoration. Always. Always. The hope is, on the one hand, to protect the church as a whole, but on the other hand, that you might restore your brother who's been in error or your sister who's been in error and been hurting other people. That's the point of it. So Paul will say in his letter to the Galatians, if someone falls into sin, restore them gently. Now that doesn't mean that if anybody sins, that they're immediately disciplined. We all sin every single day. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is unrepentant sin. What is unrepentant sin? It's not merely struggling with sin. There's a huge difference between struggle and unrepentance. If you're struggling, then you're recognizing it's not what you should be doing, and you're trying to fight against it. But if you're not struggling and you're boasting over over this sin, like they were doing, that's a different matter entirely. And that has to be dealt with with discipline. But for again, for the hope of restoration, for the hope of getting a person to um, come out of the funk that they've, they've been in. So Paul continues, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you, know that, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Ah, that's the issue. That's the issue. You see, he doesn't want the rest of the church to be torn apart by this issue, and this could very easily happen. I mean, imagine the rep. I mean, he he says at the very beginning, you're celebrating something that even the outsiders would find to be deeply, deeply immoral, and you're celebrating it. Imagine what the outsiders are saying as you're celebrating this guy who is actively dishonoring his father by having an affair with his wife. That's the idea. And so he says, you know, if you allow this to go on, it's just going to spread like leaven does through, uh, through a lump. That's why it needs to be dealt with. But now Paul wants to clarify something because he's saying you've got to get this guy away from the congregation. He's hurting the church. He's hurting himself. You need to keep him away from them. On the other hand, he wants to clarify something. I wrote to you in my letter, verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedies and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Here's Paul's point. On the one hand, Paul says, you know, I'm not telling you to, to separate yourself from everybody in the world. So this sort of, this, this verse sort of gets away from the idea that Christians need to escape and flee from the world and hide in a commune somewhere, you know, baking their own bread and, you know, making their own clothing or whatever. That's not, this verse goes against that. This verse says, no, 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 you can't, you'd have to leave the world and I don't want you to do that. I want you to associate with people on the outside that may be engaged in all sorts of heinous acts that we don't agree with because I want them to have the chance of coming to, to Christ. So I'm not trying, I'm not telling you to look out at the world with a big condescending look and judge all of them and then flee back to your Christian cave. No, that's not what I'm saying. 
What I'm talking about specifically here is the church. So he says this, now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. A couple things about that, because again, all of this sounds um, maybe overly harsh that, you know, compared to what we're used to. Uh, very important to understand that what the significance of eating together was back then as compared to today. We can relate to it to some extent, but eating back then was the sign that you were absolutely like you were in fellowship with another person, that you were united with them. Paul, the reason Paul says, I don't even want you to eat with such a person, somebody who calls themselves a Christian and is involved in, all, in these kinds of things, is because I don't want you to give off the symbol to the world that you are utterly united with what they're doing or that you're endorsing them. Now, I think today the eating doesn't hold such weight, and so I don't think that we need to necessarily take this uh, hyper-literally. I think the point is, is that we don't want people, we don't want people associating, um, uh, seeing us and thinking that we're endorsing behavior that is clearly wicked. That's Paul's idea here. Now, as far as the, what, what Paul says also here, where he says, I, I'm telling you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is guilty of sexual morality or greed, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Well, let's be honest, folks. Are there plenty of Christians that struggle with greed? Yes. Are there Christians that struggle with sexual immorality, if not actively, outwardly, inwardly? I'm telling you, I've been a pastor for nearly 14 years, and I promise you, yes, there are. It might be the number one thing that I have come across in my ministry as I've counseled people. Are there people that still struggle with idolatry in the church? Oh my goodness. Yeah, they might not be bowing down to a statue, but give me a break. There's, I mean, every day there's another idol that we find ourselves placing more trust in than God. Whether it be politics or money or whatever the case may be, oh, I'm telling you, Christians do struggle with this. A reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. Here's what occurs to me. I don't think Paul is saying, again, I think we need to make a very crucial distinction. Paul is not saying you cannot associate with any Christian who's ever struggled with these sins. I don't think that's what he means. Because as I pointed out, if that was the case, nobody would be able to associate with anybody because we all have these things still going on internally. What I think he means here is not to associate with anybody that does these things and approves of these things, doesn't struggle against these things, isn't actively seeking to fight these things. It's the only way I can make sense of the rest of Scripture, which shows that believers still struggle with ongoing sin for the rest of their lives. It's the only thing I can make sense of when I think about my engagement with other Christians throughout my ministry who have struggled with sin for the rest of their lives. I think the difference in the, the all the difference in the world is between somebody who recognizes these things are not what they ought to do, but is struggling against it, 
as compared to people that see these things and not only don't recognize there's something they shouldn't do, but affirm them. Say, no problem, I can continue doing these things and I'm just fine. All the difference in the world in how we engage with somebody like that. As I've mentioned before and I talked about actually last night, I'll just give a very practical example of this. Somebody comes to me and says, Eric, I'm really struggling with uh, watching pornography and I really, I know it's wrong and I, I confess it to the Lord and I ask for forgiveness and I just, I'm not sure if I am forgiven because I still struggle. I want to affirm to that person immediately that indeed Jesus Christ has paid for all of their sins on the cross and that they are indeed forgiven by God. On the other hand, if somebody comes to me and proudly boasts that they're watching pornography and that they are sleeping around and they feel not a hint of shame about it, I am not going to give them the assurance of forgiveness. In fact, I am going to tell them exactly what Paul tells the Christians in the Corinthian letter and in the Galatians letter and in Ephesians, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, that this is not good. This is not the pattern of behavior for the Christian life. So you see the difference. It all has to do with the person's posture. If a person's actively struggling against sin, we can work with that person. In this case for the Corinthian church, that was not what was happening. And therefore, Paul had to uh, come in and instruct them to uh, discipline this man for his behavior. So Paul goes on, the very end says, for what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You deal, it says, purge the evil person from among you. That's a quote from uh, the Pentateuch. The idea behind it is you deal with your own house first before you go out and judge the whole rest of the world. As a matter of fact, we probably just shouldn't even be judging the rest of the world. We should be taking care of our own our own issues um, and taking care of our own sins before we go out and start plucking everybody else's sins, uh, you know, specks out of their eyes or, you know, when we have our own logs. So uh, anyhow, so that's that's how we wrap up this passage. I, I, um, I hope at least the purpose for church discipline may be a little clearer to you. Um, always it's for the purpose of protecting the church and restoring the individual who is going down, is straying from the faith. Uh, with the purpose that God's church might be still a beacon of forgiveness and hope for the world. All right, that is it for today. I hope